Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Patrick Phillips is the author of three collections of poetry. The latest from Kanaf Publishing is Elegy for a Broken Machine, and two earlier collections, Boy and Chattahoochee. He has also worked as a translator on When We Leave Each Other, selected poems of Heinrich Nordbrandt. A recent Guggenheim and National Endowment for the Arts Fellow in Poetry, Patrick's work has appeared in notable journals and magazines including Poetry, Plowshares, and The Nation. He has won a number of awards, including the Kate Tufts Discovery Award, a Pushcart Prize, and the Lyric Poetry Award from the Poetry Society of America. Patrick lives in Brooklyn and also teaches at Drew University. Patrick, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here today. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I always like to begin these conversations by getting a, a little bit of a background. Particularly or personally, I'm sort of interested in the creative spark, the creative moment. Uh, that moment when you knew that creativity would be a part of your life. Then, you know, it would be interesting to hear about your artistic journey, what were some decisions or choices you made that made it possible to do what you're doing now. And so feel free to take us take us back as far as you'd like, take that wherever you want. Um, I love the question. You know, I, um, well, you know, I, I guess for me it always goes back to Georgia. I grew up in North Georgia, um, in a place called Forsyth County, uh, north of Atlanta, and um, which has its own own kind of complicated story that I may get into later. But you know, I grew up in the North Georgia Hills, uh, and I guess I um, created create. You know, the moment when I thought I would be a writer or that I might be creative was like a lot of people in school when uh, I had a fantastic high school poetry teacher, a guy named Claude Barbary. Uh, who got me in reading a lot of stuff, and I was reading Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon and First World War poets. Um, and then there was a time when I was in, uh, I guess, ninth grade when I was suspended. Uh, <laughs> and I, would, <laughs> I got suspended, and I had an in-house suspension, and I was in a, a, a guy named Kenny Borman's room, and Borman was a teacher who I had always admired. He was about six foot four. Um, and very intimidating guy, but I had always respected and admired him. And when I was in the suspension, I had the vague sense, I knew I was in the doghouse, and I had the vague sense that Borman, who was the disciplinarian, he was a, a science teacher, but he was also known as the Dean of Doom. And uh, I had the sense that Borman had I, had, I had done something stupid, and I had the vague sense that Borman had started to kind of write me off, uh, and that he decided that I was just kind of goofing around and that I wasn't a serious person. Um, and so I spent the whole time in his office when I was in suspension working on a poem. Uh, and I knew he had served in Vietnam and uh, had been uh, in that generation who sat in front of TVs and watched, you know, for birthdays to be called. I had this sense that I had been reading Owen and I had been reading Sassoon. And so I had this sense that war was a subject of poetry. So based on no experience whatsoever, uh, you know, I tried to write a war poem and I pinned it to Borman's corkboard. And when I came out of the suspension, you know, I left it there anonymously. 
which of course I don't know. He, he couldn't have possibly miss that it was mine and that I was <laughs> <laughs> I, I was stuck in his office all day. But I thought I was being very coy and sly by leaving this poem pinned to the corkboard. You know, when, late in the day when I was finally released, you know, he caught my eye looking over. You know, all the kids kind of streaming out into the hall. And he never said anything to me about it, but he sort of gave me a nod. Hmm. And uh, and I remember having the sense that ever after he took me whatever else to be uh, not a frivolous, not a frivolous person. So that was this kind of one on one direct experience that it that writing the poem, you know, whatever, whatever its merits, it had this possibility to actually communicate beneath the surface of things. And for this, you know, this adult guy who normally wouldn't pay much attention to my inner life to suddenly know what was kind of going on inside of me. So, you know, I, I literally remember his look across the heads of all the other kids and thinking, oh, you know, this is what I want. Wow. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah, yeah. If you were a superhero, <laughs> that would be your origin story. <laughs> it, it it kind of is. It was kidding. You know, it was it, 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 and and I think you know, maybe that moment of thinking that someone doesn't take you seriously, uh, you know, that's a that's a pivotal moment and I, I and and if anything else, I just I thought this is important because this has managed to communicate something of what's going on. It, and you know, when you're 14, it's very hard to communicate what's going on inside of you. Sure. Um, sure. So, so I, I felt that was a kind of that th there was very little else I knew that was as important as that. And uh, and then the next steps after that. So that was sort of the spark that that ignited this uh, this this thing for you. And then what what happens next? What's the next step? Well, then I was then I was kind of propelled out of Georgia by my mother, I, as I had been from an early age. She my parents are both from Birmingham, Alabama, and my mother had long romanticized the North and and especially New England and within New England, especially Boston. And so, you know, places like Boston and New York. So I went to college at Tufts in Boston, which was uh, wonderful for me. And also, I think, you know, something that was wonderful for, for my mother. She sort of lived vicariously for through me, so, you know, someone from Birmingham, Alabama, and who lived in Georgia, you know, to, to go to college, and I went to Tufts, but to go to, to go to college in Boston was this wonderful adventure among all the cultured people <laughs> who, <laughs> who my mother imagined to be far, you know, intellectual and erudite and uh, sophisticated all the time, which of course that's not what I experienced in Massachusetts, but I did uh, have a wonderful time there, and as an undergraduate, I met Deborah Diggs, who was a poet. I was very lucky. I went to an undergraduate college that happened to have a lot of amazing young poets teaching there at the time. And uh, Deborah Diggs was there, a poet named Marie Howe was there, and a poet named David Rivard was there. And all three of them had a real influence on me. And I just, I wanted to be like them. And I wanted to, I wanted to do what they did in the classroom. And I wanted to do what they did on the page. And, and then Deborah Diggs especially became very, very important to me in a real model and a mentor and just a hero. Well, a, a very good friend of mine and also a poet, Nick Lance, who I also had on the show, uh, sort of when I had him on the show, you know, I sort of picked his brain a little bit about how he got started and how he got his first poems published. So I would I would throw the same question to you. So how, um, how did you go about sort of breaking in, I, I suppose one would say, as, as a poet? You know, I waited... I, I had good teachers in this regard. I think I started very, very late trying to get poems published, and I, I 
Deborah was a teacher of mine, and then I also studied at University of Maryland in a graduate program with Michael Collier and Stan Plumley and Phyllis Levin. And they they were wonderful teachers in that they almost refused to talk about the business. They wanted to talk about poems. They wanted to talk about Keats. They wanted to talk about Dickinson. They wanted to talk about Plath. But they what they didn't really want to talk about was submitting to magazines and putting together a manuscript. And I remember being very frustrated early on and I thought well you know you guys have the keys to it all why don't you why don't you just tell me how it all works you know why don't you yeah. just why don't you explain why don't you send all my brilliance to your agents and your uh, <laughs> and, and your editors and your magazine editing friends and you know I look back now and I feel just incredibly lucky that that they tried so hard to keep a firewall between the actual work of writing good poems and the actual work of reading poems deeply, the, a firewall between that and the business, you know, po-biz and uh, careerism and all the rest. And, you know, Lord knows I've been playing that game for my whole adult life and I I, I still like the, the thrill of the chase to, to place work where I want it to go and to place a manuscript where I want it to go and all of that. But I, I learned early on to keep those just just very, very separate. So... Um, I didn't start sending out to magazines until, in fact, someone approached me. So I, I, I went through my undergraduate and I didn't send anything out. And I just was, I didn't have the sense that my work was ready to go out. And so I, the good news is I kept working and working and, and not being satisfied. And then uh, I had the good luck to go to the Breadloaf Writers Conference in Vermont um, as a waiter in 1995. And when I was there, you get to give a three-minute reading. Uh, and a three-minute reading is really a, a beautiful thing because it's a lot easier to be brilliant for three minutes <laughs> yeah. than it is, than it's true, it is it's for true, longer. It's true in music, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because people always – I now know people who complain about the short time they have at the podium. And I remember thinking, God, what a gift. I only have to be up there for three minutes and I can I can use everything I've got you know, all the decent work that I have in the backpack and I can pretend that it, that there's plenty more where that came from, yeah. uh, which, which there wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But my three minutes, my, my three minutes, I guess, made at least a little bit of a, of, of an impression because at the very end of the conference, I was, I, yeah, I worked as a waiter there. So I was sweeping floors in the dining hall and, uh, a wonderful guy named Ed Hirsch, who's a poet, who, uh, whose work I had admired and loved and who's a very generous guy um, was starting a, a, to edit the poetry for a new magazine called Double Take, which unfortunately is defunct now, but it was a really fantastic magazine for about 10 years out of Duke. And, uh, you know, he came up to me as I was pushing a broom on the very last day of the conference and said, I like that poem you read. Would you send it to me? Uh, and he published it in Double Take oh, wow. in, one of the, in one of the very first issues. So, oh, wow. so I, felt, I felt very lucky to sort of get a publication before I had actually been angling for one. Yeah. And, and then, of course, after that, there were long, you know, I have a three-ring binder filled with, before the days of email, filled with, you know, postcards with return receipt and various ways that I was used to track all of my submissions. So I have, Lord knows, I have, that, you know, hundreds of rejections like oh, sure. everybody else. Oh, sure. But, yeah. but it, was, it, was, it was nice to think that all that time resisting the urge to publish had kind of paid off. Well, you bring up an interesting point because, you know, I mean, I had friends in grad school who were, 
you know, applying for performing jobs or college teaching positions and keeping track of their rejection letters, you know, even yeah. to the point one of my friends would sort of put them up on the cork board in his office, you know, sort yeah. of like yeah. badges of honor or something. That, uh, But but it is uh, something that I think all artists on some level uh, have to deal with, which is rejection. You know, how uh, do you, of course. you know, how do you process that and, and how do you keep going in the face of people just keep telling you no until they say yes, you know, and, and how do you get to that point when they say yes? Like what kept you going? Well, you know, it, it never bothered me. I think it helps to have really honest teachers early on. So Stanley Plumley was, was a wonderful teacher. Deborah was also incredibly honest, didn't do any lying really. She was very encouraging without lying to people. And I felt lucky because no, no form, no polite form rejection was as devastating as some of the conversations that I had in some of my teachers' offices when they were when I wanted to please them far more than I wanted to please the editors of those magazines and when I was sort of deluding myself maybe about what I had achieved and then was told flatly that I, that it had not gotten there yet to go back to the drawing board and you know that that experience early on I mean this must happen in music as well you know I think that experience of a very demanding teacher early on is just an incredible gift because you you learn you don't you're not going to die from it. <laughs> in yeah. fact, you're going to in fact you're going to benefit from it and I just sort of early on became the student who craved that. And so when editors would send me a no, you know, I I mean I felt the same disappointment everyone else felt, but I also I I guess I tried to cultivate a doggedness and a and a refusal to the only the only bad reaction I thought I could possibly have was to stop working. Hmm. So if I felt Wounded by it, I could turn that into resentment. I've always been very motivated by resentment and envy. <laughs> I think it's underrated. I think artists, I think the influence of resentment and envy are kind of underrated in the arts uh, as, a, as a real nuclear power plant sometimes. Uh, not that you give into it, but that you, that, you know, when someone writes a poem that I wish I had written, I, you know, I can remember reading a poem in The New Yorker. Uh, that Christian Wyman wrote called Five Doors Down. And, you know, he's a wonderful poet and from Texas. And it's it's a poem that I felt was kind of available to me. The subject matter is very Southern and very uh, kind of rusty and kind of rednecky. And I remember reading that poem and just thinking, Jesus Christ, you know, I should have written that poem. Like, w what have I been doing that yeah. I didn't write? That I didn't that I didn't write this poem. And yeah. I thought Chris, Christian Wyman is out there, who I don't know at all. But I thought Christian Wyman is out there somewhere, turning his his childhood in Texas into this. And and I loved it so much that I I felt envious not of the publication, but I felt envious of the of the artistic achievement. And it 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 turned instantly into a fuel source. Yeah, sure. sort of a few. And I thought, well, I better get up early tomorrow. You yeah, know? yeah, no, so. I think that that's great, and I, I that also resonates with me. You know, seeing going to see a really great performance, uh, you know, of a musician, or hearing a really fabulous uh, composition, and thinking, oh, what have I been doing? You know, that yeah. was amazing. So yeah, yeah and, I totally and resonates. I think, and I think the needle can flip. You know, the needle can flip north to south in a way, and that there's the good version. When I say, you know, being motivated by envy and resentment you know i say that with a laugh and i mostly mean i just feel driven back to the desk there's there's also the negative version obviously where right. one feels eaten sort of eaten alive by it and really silenced by it you know and and i it, probably most artists have been there as well yep. so i don't mean to sound smug that i haven't been there but i've i've tried to 
remember that it can be this positive thing and admiration, you know, the part of envy that's admiration is, can be a, can be a real, uh, you know, spur to new work. Yeah, I know. I think that's a great, uh, a great attitude to have. Um, well, I want to come back to something that I heard you say just because, uh, I also agree and I, I've noticed a trend in recent years of this type of thing. And, and I'm just going to speak from the from the musician, performer, slash composer point of view here. Sure, and then sure. maybe you can sort of, we can talk about this. But for me, there's uh, this sort of thing that's happening now where performers or maybe composers even are chasing kind of recognition over ability. And uh, the idea that, that some sort of like fame, whether it's, you know, internet famous or, you know, in your little uh, tribe famous is kind of uh, the the benchmark for what success looks like. And that the most desirable use of this kind of talent is for success. You know, this kind of, uh, I don't even know what we'd, popularity or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, so what happens is we get a lot of like musicians or even composers fall into this camp too that apply more of their energy and imagination on selling themselves or their virtuosity or whatever it is, they're selling something rather than inventing and creating something new. And I don't know, I don't, I don't want to sound, um, (laughs) I don't want to sound, what's the word, like, uh, on my soapbox or something about it, but they're, they're, there they are, you know, pushing their thing all the time. I wonder if you if there's a parallel for that, or if, you know, or you can tell me I'm I'm full of it too. <laughs> so. No, not at all, John. I mean, look, I I know. I mean, I think almost anyone who's paying attention to any artistic community, uh, and maybe any community of any kind, is aware of this. That things have changed. I think in the you know in the last twenty years, and you know, clearly, I've watched it too, and and I know exactly what you're talking about, and I know both the the ambivalence about all of it. I also know the feeling of like, maybe that's what I should be doing as well. And, <laughs> and wow, look at those people who are really good at this at, yeah. at, at kind of networking themselves. Yes. And I also know the hesitation to sort of sound crusty and, you know, kind of grumbling about it. But, you know, it, I, I'm of two minds. Like on the one hand, the technology has changed it. And on the other hand, it, some of it is same as it ever was, which is there's always been the temptation to want to promote the career over the actual work and you know the technology has simply created many more opportunities to do that I don't know I, I have I really do have a, a three ring binder with all of these postcards when I used to send out poems you know they would say if you would like a return receipt to acknowledge that we have your manuscript send a self-addressed postcard so I have hundreds of postcards from 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 the 90s and the early 2000s before electronic submissions happen and I can see like I did send out a lot of work but I I used to send out that work and then wait you know and wait and wait and wait and in the early days I would send it out and I would wait and do nothing and then I realized that if I did that, you know, a month could go by where I didn't write anything because I was waiting expectantly for the New Yorker, you know, to send back their glowing praise and acceptance. And I think the diff- one difference in the technology is it's now possible to do that kind of self-promotion 24 hours a day. Yeah. It, it wasn't possible when I started sending work out in the mid to late 90s. You know, you, you drop something in the mailbox and you needed to wait two months, you know, at the minimum. So it wasn't possible to be promoting yourself 
at two in the morning. There was no, there was no way to do that. And now I think it is possible. And I do see how it can sometimes really consume people and consume their energy. Yeah. So, um, but, but I think, I think you would maybe also agree that there are those artists and those, uh, you know, whatever the discipline who the, the art and the, the business side come together beautifully and you know there's no denying that this is powerful powerful work and that this person is very very successful at doing the other end of that work you know and I I think we can we can probably point to any number of very very successful artists that that they they're the total package you know they have all of those skills yeah and I think you know I I I don't I, I, I'm definitely I'm definitely not that person. <laughs> and then I, I I write I write in large part. I think I read and write in large part because I would far rather delve into the past than deal with the present sometimes. Mm. Um, and I like to I'd, I'd rather I'd rather converse with the dead than the living many days. So uh, you know I'm not that guy, and it it means all I can do is is. Get, you know, I, I've learned to accept that, that I need to get back to work and hopefully the work will, I mean, I just, you know, I have to depend on the kindness of strangers often that hopefully the work will be recognized on some level. And I, I, I think you're right. There are people who are good at both. You know, I know people who are in rock bands and, you know, I've occasionally given readings and kind of sheepishly admitted that I have a reading or, or they found out third hand that I'm going to be at a podium somewhere. And they're like, why didn't you tell me? You know? <laughs> and, and, and I realized that in the world that they're coming from, you, you blast it from the rooftops, right? Yeah. That you have, yeah. that you have a gig coming up you have to. And, it, and you're, and you're, you're the one who's letting everybody know you have a gig. And, you know, I think maybe there's a generation that's come after me who feel that way about poetry too. But you know, that's, whatever it's 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 so uncomfortable for me to do it that I don't even struggle with it anymore I don't do it I I get back to work but I think there's an upside to that which is uh, all of that promotion is a is a real time sink and I don't maybe uh, maybe there are people who do it without later feeling bad about it but I'm not one of those people so <laughs> I've stopped struggling quite so much because I I, I've learned I, I try to at least let people know that something is happening and I don't I don't actually want to publish a book and pretend it didn't happen. I do want people to know about it. <laughs> sure. I do. You worked I hard do, on that. Right. I yeah. do intend. I, and, I, and I not only worked hard on it, I actually want it to I want readers like I do actually want to connect with people. And I I am trying to say something about what it feels to be alive. And it doesn't mean as much to me if I don't have the thought that some people might read it and feel something. So I I, I very much want that. But I. I very much also err on the side. I'd rather err on the side of of sending it out like a message in a bottle and and getting my head down and getting back to work. Yeah, well, so I've always said about uh, music, and I got this from one of my former teachers, is that, you know, maybe a better measure of success is the ability to communicate with an audience. And, And music, sort of at its most elemental, is all about communication and having a dialogue. And I think that's... That's definitely true with with poetry to, to, you know, to some extent, I think we I I would say so. And certainly this might be a good pivot point to then dive into some of your work, because to me, your work very much communicated to me and resonated with me in a way that, you know, um, I have a handful of I I read poetry and uh, I'm interested in the process of of writing poetry and uh I do a lot of pieces using spoken texts, and I've done collaborations with poets. So I like to think that I have, you know, a very strong appreciation for 
the poetry that I like. And the poetry that I like communicates and resonates with me in a, in a very personal way. And, and yours does that. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank I'm, you I'm, I'm delighted to hear it, John. Thank you very much. I'm very, I'm very glad to hear that. Well, let's talk about maybe your newest book, Elegy for, for a Broken Machine. Maybe I could help set the stage by just uh, giving a, a brief introduction. Uh, what you say in the liner notes here is that at its core, it's a son's lament for his father. And it's a book of elegies that takes us from the luminous world of childhood to the fluorescent glare of operating rooms and recovery wards and into the twilight lives of those who must go on. Tell me a little bit about how this collection came together for you. Yeah, so the book largely came about from things that I experienced in midlife over the years before the, you know, there's a long lag between what I lived and what I end up writing, but I find it really inevitable that a lot of what I'm experiencing winds up in the poems. So the two experiences that really informed the book were the loss of my father-in-law, my wife's husband, who was a very dear friend of mine and had become a kind of father figure to me and, and died of cancer. And he died at home and, you know, taken care of by the family. So that was, I got a kind of vivid close-up look at, at the end of someone's life for the first time. And then my father had a couple of brushes of death, including an open heart surgery that was, you know, far more brutal and really violent than I had known. Some of these things, uh, you know, when you hear someone had bypass surgery, you know, the phrase makes it sound not so bad. And then when you see the reality of it, you know, my dad, I asked my dad how he felt while he was still all morphined up. And he said, well, I feel like someone just planted an ax in the middle of my chest. And, you know, that's that that's sort of what it looked like. So, so the book is, the book is about really kind of coming to, I had written a fair amount about becoming a father and, you know, the next stage is really realizing that your parents are, are nearing the ends of their lives and that you, you sort of take your place next in line. So, you know, so the point, the, the poems in the book ended up set also, and I'm always very interested in setting and, you know, the settings of these wound up being a lot in hospitals and, you know, sick beds and places like that. Well, I had earmarked uh, several of the poems in this uh, in this book, and uh, one of the ones that that really resonated with me quite strongly was actually the first one, and I wonder if you might be open to reading that one. I'd be delighted. Thank thanks for asking. Elegy for a broken machine. My father was trying to fix something, and I sat there just watching, like I used to, whenever something went wrong. I kept asking where he'd been until he put down a wrench and said, listen, dying's just something that happens sometimes. Who knows where that kind of dream comes from? Why some things vanish and some just keep going forever. Like that look on his face when he'd stare off at something I could never make out in the murky garage. His ear pressed to whatever it was that had died. His eyes listening for something. So deep inside it, I thought even the silence, if you listened, meant something. Beautiful. This image just resonates so clearly with me. And if it's okay for you, I'd I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't share kind of a personal response to this uh, poem. Absolutely. Do do you mind? No, absolutely, John. I'm interested. Yeah, so... I had uh, uh, also a very similar kind of uh, story to yours. My my father, I lost my father two years ago to cancer, 
And it was absolutely devastating. I mean, devastating for all of us. And for, for the reasons that you also mentioned that, you know, I think it's always devastating to lose someone that we love, people that are closest to us, but our parents, you know. And he was also very young. He was only 55. And so it was really hard to watch him get sick and, and frail and, you know, and the someone who had been so strong in my life and someone who was the person that I looked to when when I needed to fix something, <laughs> yeah, you know, of course, and, and yeah, that's of course. what I mean. I think a lot of people have that relationship with their dad. You know, they're the ones that you ca- call when the car breaks down and you don't know what to do. You know, call dad; he'll know what to do. Exactly. You know, and that to me, that was just that that's gone, and it's really that's really um, resonates with me. This this poem about fixing things, and uh, there's this uh, like you describe. He would often sit and look at things and analyze things and be able to fix them. And, uh, you know, granted, sometimes we made things worse. <laughs> right, so right, right. He, had this, he even, <laughs> even had this coffee cup that said, uh, and I tell this to my students all the time too, um, the coffee cup says, uh, if it ain't broke, take, take it apart and lose some of the pieces, and then it will be. <laughs> That's right. That's um, right. <laughs> but, but anyway, and I wanted to tell you, this was the story I wanted to tell you, is that in the last few years of his life, he was really into ham radio, of, of all things. He got uh-huh. into ham radio, and he had even converted my brother's old room into what we all sort of referred to as Command Central, you know, and he had everything. He would yeah. mostly, like, build a lot of his own equipment, and he, he built these really tall antennas that huge tall antennas above the house uh, that were like on a pole that extended way up above the roof. And uh, there was a a point really early on in his uh, cancer treatment when he was just starting to get kind of weak and and starting to lose weight. And um, anyway, so he asked me to come up and help him fix one of these antennas. And I was standing on the ladder and, you know, I was looking up at him and I, you know, I just have, happened to have my phone in my pocket. And I thought, you know, I want to capture this. And so I just snapped a quick photo. You know, he didn't even know that I had taken the picture. And I think it's probably, I mean, it's definitely one of the last pictures that I took of my dad, you know, before he got really sick. But what's funny about this photo, and I have it on my refrigerator. uh, Yeah, I just keep it there. So I see it every day. And uh, his his face is some like covered by his arm and part of the pole. So all you see is him holding this pole. And, but there he is, you know, cancer and all, uh, up there on the yeah. roof fixing that antenna. You know, he just yeah, yeah, yeah. kept going. And so anyway, when you say the father was trying to fix something and I sat there watching like I used to whenever something went wrong, that just ooh, hit me. You know, it's like uh, that was, that, I've been there. <laughs> well, that's so. great. You know, and, the, you know, this 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 is one of the, you know, I, I, I should say like, in the book, I sort of blur my father and my father-in-law together because they both were very much fathers to me. So this, this is actually a point about my father-in-law who was exactly like your dad. You know, he was an engineer. He was a fixer. He would, he, I'm sure there's ham radio equipment in the basement, you know, <laughs> very much the same guy. And, you know, I spent a tremendous amount of time sitting around while he fixed something that I didn't know anything about. And he was incredibly patient and would, would, would work on it and explain a little bit as much as you were interested, but there were, you know, there were also just long stretches when he would kind of disappear into the barn or disappear into the basement. And if you went there, you'd find him tinkering and holding something up to his ear or looking over the top of his glasses, you know, at some intricate little part. So, you know, these, yeah. I mean, I think a very similar figure, a very similar guy. And I think you're, and, and he also died of cancer. And I think one of the distinctive things about cancer is that unlike a heart attack, which is what almost killed my dad, 
the cancer, it's a gradual decline. And so yeah. you're forced to watch this strongest, most knowledgeable, most reliable and, and skillful person, you know, slowly lose a lot of that. And, uh, I think I connect very much with your story and, um, I, I was just very used to watching Ollie, my father-in-law do these things. And yet the notion that he was breaking down was sort of unthinkable because not only was he not the person who broke down, he was the guy you went to when things broke down. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I, all I can say is this, I identify very much with what you're talking about. Yeah. With your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Is there another poem from the collection that maybe you would like to read? Let me read the one just a couple pages on, which is uh, about my dad's surgery. Okay. It's on page six. It's called Elegy Outside the ICU. Elegy Outside the ICU. They came into this cold white room and shaved his chest, then made a little purple line of dashes down his sternum, which the surgeon... When she came in, cut along as students took turns cranking a shiny metal jig that split his ribs. Just enough for them to fish the heart out. Lungs inflating and the dark blood circulating through these hulking beige machines as for the second time since dawn they skirted the ruined arteries with a long blue length of vein that someone had unlaced from his leg. So that by almost every definition my father died there on the table and came back in the body of his own father, or his mother at the end, or whoever it was the morphine summoned up out of the grave into his dreams. Like that figure in the floor-length mirror he kept talking to, as we inched a fluid-hung telemetry pole past the endless open doors, until he was finally close enough to recognize a flicker in those bloodshot eyes, and a quiver in the mumbling lips. So slack and thin, he leaned a little closer to catch their ghostly whisper before he even realized it was him. One of the things that touch or is sort of that touches this one touches upon that that I sort of that resonated with me was the idea of how mundane, maybe mundane's not the right word, ordinary some yeah. of these medical procedures are to the people who do them day in and day out, you know, when, and I remember my dad going to the cancer treatments and getting the chemo and, you know, it was just uh, a Thursday for these people, you know, and uh, for my dad, it was a big deal. And this, the whole opening of, you know, where they came in and they shaved his chest and they made a purple line of dashes. I mean, all of that is very routine. You know, that's right. That, that's exactly right. And that's one of the things that's shocking. Like I thought the violence would be the most shocking, but in a way, the uh, the you know, it's, this is you know the people who took care of of my father-in-law and my father. You know, a lot of them were were heroic and wonderful, and I I felt an incredible debt to them. They were also doing it in a in an almost assembly line fashion at times. <laughs> not not to say there wasn't care, but that he really wasn't the only one. There were many, many more procedures to do even that same morning. So the shocker is is both the violence and then the, the exactly I think mundane is exactly right. The okay. dailiness of it and the and the way that for me there's a before and an after yeah. in my in yeah. my life between the person I used to be and the person I am after witnessing all of this. And one of the reasons for that is suddenly I can't walk around and not know that this is going on everywhere and always all the time. And that somewhere, you know, I live in the city. And so if I stand on the street and look up at a high rise building, you know, with with 
500 units, it's impossible not to know that in some of those rooms, scenes like the ones that I remember are playing out. It's almost an inevitability. So, I, you know, I think maybe the last, the very last step in growing up is, is taking care of someone and then being taught that, which of course also teaches you that, you know, it will be us at some point yeah. <laughs> on a cheery note. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you, when, when you walk around the hospital, you, you, you can't help but but see there is a steady supply. They're never they're never short. Yeah, it's very a very zen moment. What you were saying before uh, of there was a before and an after. You know that's yeah that's very that's very I feel that too. You know that's very true. The other thing I feel that about is the birth of my son, which might be a good pivot point to yeah. then talk about this other collection of poetry called Boy. Would that be okay uh, if we make yeah, the transition? Yeah, I love that. I love it absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, this one also resonated with me, as I mentioned, and this this one you sort of reflect a lot on young fatherhood, which also is, a, again, another personal topic for me, as uh, we yeah. ha- had our son at the end of January, so he's a little over six months old now. Hey, mazel tov. Uh, thank you, That's thank awesome. you. <laughs> and uh, so so I got this book, uh, not really knowing exactly what, you know, what it was. This was the actually the first book of yours that I read because the other one hadn't come out yet. And yeah. so uh, my favorite poem from this one is, it seems like, a, oh, it's the second poem. I was going to say, I like the first poems in your books. No, it's the second one called Untitled. I wonder if you could read that one. Yeah, I'd love to. And, and you know, like many of the things that actually pan out, based very much in experience and a true story. Untitled. You won't believe it now, but for two whole days, you were only the baby, the boy, the X-Man, Doctor Who. I could barely stand it, but your mother was in no hurry to decide whose eyes cracked open like a kitten as you nursed. She cooed and kissed and cupped your throbbing skull and lingered until they brought the yellow form in that moment when we could have called you anything, when you were you, beloved, and had no other name. Beautiful. I love um, that poem. That's really that's, terrific. That's, that's the 15-year-old who's my technical advisor now on the computer. Wow. There you go. <laughs> so they do grow yeah, that's up. Him. That's him. Yeah, but that's, that's, that poem came out of my memory of, of the real thing, which is my, my wife is very uh, my wife is very certain and deter- – well, not certain actually. She's sort of – she's very good at, at dealing with uncertainty and she's not quick to, to rush to things. So when she wasn't quite sure what we should call him, she just was a-okay with that and so for we we were in the hospital for a little while and i was dying to decide and she you know sort of said i need to i need to look at him a while before we can decide i need to get to know him Hmm. so there was this crazy thing of and you know maybe also an introduction to the way that as a father you're as devoted as i was as a father i was also still undeniably extraneous (laughs) <laughs> in those first in those first few days so the two of them I, I my main role was to watch the two of them in this kind of bubble that that really just included the two of them and she you know spent a lot of time looking at him and thinking about him so so he was he really was baby x and i was calling the family and they would ask what the name was and for like you know 24 hours i didn't have an answer and then finally <laughs> finally the bureaucracy forced us to and uh yeah and he got and he got the name sydney but i I I love I, the poem was a kind of reverie of going back to that moment when he was still the the person I know, but he still didn't have a name. You know, he still he still wasn't he still he still didn't have that tag that 
that defines us. I, it's, I suppose it's kind of cliche to say, but it's, it's fascinating to me how, you know, we have given our kids names. And now, I mean, it only, it's only been six months for me, but I can't imagine him with any other name but Luke. I mean, that is right. my, that's my son, you know. Had we right. named him uh, one of the other names that we were sort of thinking about, uh, it just wouldn't fit him now, you know. It's amazing how that, right. how that works. Well, and I guess the other thing I was trying, I agree 100%. And the other thing I guess I was kind of celebrating and feeling uh, just wonder at was the thought that like there's he, there's actually a person on the planet who I've known so long I knew him before he had a name. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know if you experienced this, but my wife and I both said that we sort of felt like he was we've always known him or something. And then, and then, and then there's also the feeling where at first they seem like they're from another planet. You know, you feel like you're looking at this alien creature who's come from some, on some asteroid or something. And so, so, you know, uh, maybe the, the, the common thread in all of that is just wonder and awe, which was one of my main reactions to be. And again, in the, you know, in the world of the hospital, you know, just a feeling of wonder and awe and realizing that this, whatever it was, this was not normal life. Yeah. Yeah. This this collection is there anything that uh, else that you want to uh, say about this and like how it came about and I mean most of the poems are related to young like I said young fatherhood it seems to me so is there some other thing that the thread that runs through or anything that you want to well, say about it? Well, you know I, I guess we're, we're I'm very flattered by the conversation. It's lovely to think it all had such a plan, but <laughs> it's I would say given that we talked about artistic endeavor and and trying to to do good work and and balancing it against careerism and all of that these, these are all in in all of the books just the poems i knew how to write you know so i i think in a way it's retrospective that they have a commonality that these are all poems about new fatherhood and marriage and that the later ones are about midlife and the the, the aging of my parents you know I think it's it's very comforting to to read a book and think about the ways in which the artist planned all of this out and came up with such a design. But in, my experience is actually just you know I feel a little bit more like a drowning man most of the time, and I I don't find writing any easier than I ever did. Um, I find I have a little bit more patience with myself than I used to. But otherwise, you know, I, I guess the only thing I can say is I I love the game of putting it together into a kind of order and make, hopefully making the, the, the cliche is that the, the last poem is the one made by, by the entire book. And I, and I love playing that game, but I don't actually experience it beforehand. It's all, it's all improvisational and really sort of trying to say what you can say. And in a, in a way, these are poems about young fatherhood and about married love, because that's what I was living at the time. Yeah. Well, this might be, since you mentioned that, maybe this is a good sort of transition into talking a little bit about that another thing I like to do on the show is uh, to have artists talk about their their process and how they how they work how they like to work. So you mentioned for you you're just kind of working and then maybe a thread appears and you can group these into a collection and now you have a book of poetry. But maybe as you're writing them, that's not the case. And uh, that's what I understood that you were saying. And yeah, okay, maybe you could take us through a little bit of the process, like how you how that works for you how do you how do you write a poem how do you like to do it you know my 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 method is largely 
wildly inefficient, which is I write a lot and I discard 95% of it, 99% of it. So I abandon poems habitually. I sometimes abandon poems and go back and realize that I was wrong, that there's actually something in there. So I, I guess I begin in a, in a I, I sort of compose in a blind fury and a blind terror uh, because I find sitting down and, you know, cracking my knuckles like, like the composer at the piano, you know, like I'm now here's the maestro ready to work. I find all of that incredibly stifling and silencing. So I tend to just jot things down on the backs of envelopes or open my laptop in the middle of the night and tap out a paragraph and close it and go back to sleep or, or whatever, or type things on my phone, on the train, whatever I can do. If something comes to me, I tend to take it and try to get it down and then I run away. (laughs) And, and so my, my process, since I'm always generating these scraps and random pieces that most of which I throw away when I, when I sit down for, when I have a morning to write and I sit down, it's largely a kind of rummaging and I rummage through the back pockets of my pants and I rummage through my phone and I rummage through my old drafts. And, you know, if it gets really bad, I rummage through my even older drafts. And I, I look, I just, I, so I start the day kind of reading scraps of things that feel like almost like somebody else wrote them. Yeah. Um, and, and if it's bad, then somebody else wrote really bad things and, and which is often the case. And if it's good, then I feel like I sort of, Maybe three weeks earlier, I gave myself this crazy gift by writing something interesting, which I didn't have any faith in at the time. But three weeks later, I start to have a little bit of faith in it or a little bit. I start to feel a little tiny spark that if I blow on it might might actually flame up. So so I don't I don't spend a lot of time sitting down at the blank page thinking it's time to write a great poem or write even a good poem. I spend a lot of time tinkering like my father-in-law with the broken machine, like tinkering, prodding, and then, you know, listening and hoping that something is, is going to get there. And I, you know, I, I, I'm also an, an, you know, my poems are very small, so I, I'm an inveterate cutter. So I, I like to write very, very long in that early moment of hopefulness and then just slash and burn my way to something. So some, so some of the poems in the book that are 10 lines started as, you know, 80 lines. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, again, I have no, I know people who work very, very differently. I think the longer I've been working, the more I, the the less time I spend in a kind of training mode of just, just writing my lines because I need to, and the more time I spend waiting. I wonder if this is for you too, but I mean, your son is much older, but with with my son now, you know, he's just sort of sleeping through the night, and I find that sleep, yeah. <laughs> the sleep deprivation is is real, you know. Um, oh, it's 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 profound. <laughs> I, I, I have a most of those years are just a blur. You won't, you're not going to remember them at all. I don't remember any of that. I don't even know. At one point, when my son was born, we moved to Denmark. We moved to Copenhagen six weeks after he was born because I had a, a translation grant. And I don't have any recollection of a U-Haul truck. I don't remember packing any boxes. I don't. Re- I barely remember the flight there. And I don't. I mean, he was six weeks old. I have no idea how we got out of our apartment, where we put our stuff, how we got to Copenhagen. Wow. It's 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 all a blur. 
<laughs> wow. Well, uh, I, and I've heard yeah. I've heard this from from other people who are creative uh, folks who have children, and they say that your your work becomes necessarily more focused. That you That's end up right. and you end up thinking about uh, your your creative, uh, what be it whatever discipline, but you end up thinking about that that material. In other words, you, you don't have unlimited time to sit in a studio and, and work. You have maybe chunks of time here and there. So I find that when I'm driving to, you know, I'm making a commute or I'm buying groceries, like that's when I'm sort of thinking my creative work is happening, you know, as I'm doing those things. And then it makes my actual practice of 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 doing the the real work of creating much more focused. I, I find other pockets of time and other areas of my life that I can do that. Yeah, I, I, I identify with that. All I can say is I, I identify with that very much. And the poems in the in that book, Boy, are very short. I'm not exaggerating that I wrote many of them walking around with, with Sid and a baby Bjorn on the front of my chest, you know, in Copenhagen. And I, I was walking around and he'd fall asleep for 40 minutes. And during that time, I mean, one of the beauties of poetry is you don't need anything. You know, the down the downside is you don't get to buy any gear. Really, like you can, <laughs> you can, you can get. Yeah, I like gear a lot, so I'm envious of musicians and sculptors and painters for yeah. all of their gear. But you know, I have some nice pens. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> uh, but the upside is, absent any gear at all, I, I I think I could probably still recite most of the poems in the book because I I wrote most of them just walking around talking to myself. Mm. Wow. So so it's very it was very compatible with my life and I think you're right that there's in a way it's always about finding the advantage in one's current constraint. So you know I'm very interested in form. I'm almost all of the poems that I've written for the most part in the last two books are are constrained in some formal way whether it's a received form or something I've invented and for me that's just because I've come to I've come to feel more in touch with the unconscious sort of less do-gooder part of my brain when I'm when I'm working the poem like a crossword puzzle or something and trying to solve the problem and trying to be an artist while you have an infant is a problem <laughs> and, and and it's a and it's a serious constraint but for me anyway and I think it sounds like for you too it it can actually be turned into this upside where you realize like oh holy crap like look what one word did you know look what one one beat it look at what one small you know pause or one small moment of silence can how it can change things and you're and suddenly the constraint that makes you focus that much more you, you know you learn some things at least I, I feel like I learned some things by not having so much time you know yeah. I wasn't able I wasn't able to blather on I didn't I, you know I, I was too busy for that so at least for a book's length of, of work it was a it was a real lesson I think yeah well, uh, before we get to our sort of closing segment here, I want to make sure and mention uh, that people can find you online and your website, patrickthemighty.com. Now, is there a story behind Patrick the Mighty? Or? Um, the, the only story is that patrickphillips.com is taken. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 Patrick and Patrick the Mighty. Now I'm going to send a bunch of people to PatrickPhillips.com. You're you're welcome, <laughs> other Patrick Phillips. But uh, pa Patrick the Mighty was my camp counselor name when I was 16. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, at any rate, uh, people can find you there and uh, find find your works and uh, other information if they're interested to to learn more. I couldn't. I mean, I can't recommend these. Your work strongly enough certainly resonated with me, and uh, so I hope I hope more people are finding it through the show here. Let's go ahead and and do our closing segment here, and I always like to close these conversations by 
getting some advice, maybe not even advice, maybe wisdom, maybe experience about how one lives and sustains a creative life. And you and I both share uh, the the task of being educators and higher education and working with students. And so this might be directed to uh, some young person out there who may be uh, an aspiring creative person, a poet perhaps, or a writer. And uh, so, but, but it could, you can take this wherever you'd like, but how, how do you approach this living and sustaining a creative life? You know, I, I love the question and I think that it's, it's, I, lo- I love to sort of, I guess I'm going to be a bit of a cheerleader for the notion of, of living a creative life and trying to make art just because I feel, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to undergraduates who have, you know, pressure from all sides to do everything other than, you know, devote themselves to an art form that they love. And I understand all of the pragmatic reasons. I understand why their parents worry. I un- <laughs> I understand why... I too want to have a roof overhead and enough to eat and you know money in my pocket but at the same time I there, there's very there are a few forces sort of compelling people or, or even suggesting to people that it's possible to devote yourself to a discipline to an artistic discipline and that you know I I feel like I've just gotten joy from it and it's you know it's been you know so many i can say many of my happiest hours in my life have been sitting at my desk moving words around and trying trying to make a good poem and whether i succeed or not it feels grand in a way i think i got this from some of my teachers that it you know who who encouraged me not to be in competition with the other person in my workshop or even the person in the literary magazine i was reading but to you know keith said he wanted to be among the english poets and you know, obviously, many of us will not achieve that, but there's something grand in the endeavor. So I have felt kind of ennobled to simply count myself among people who aspire to that. So, and then as far as practical advice, you know, I one of the things I've learned is that there's the unsung virtue of of doggedness and determination. And you know, I think of innumerable people I knew along the way who were more talented than me and more writing better poems than me at a given moment and reading more deeply and soulfully than I was. And a lot of them have given up uh, writing poems. And they, you know, and I realize they may be doing other wonderful things, and, and many of them are. But there's a thing that you don't really get when you're in your 20s, which is that people will fall by the wayside. And if you're one of the folks who keeps writing, almost by definition, the competition starts to thin out. And if you're one of the people who sticks with it, and and not just sticks with it in a career I mean I don't just mean in a career fashion but if you're actually someone who sticks with it and continues to try to get better and goes to the desk every day not looking for a publication but looking to learn something from the from the the artists of the past and whatever your discipline is then as time goes on you know your work starts to get more and more interesting hopefully because there aren't a lot of people who stick with it over the long haul so you know, and I think I, that's also related to what I was saying earlier, where I think having a, a real firewall between self-promotion and the biz, all of which one has to do. And I, you know, I've spent decades sending my work out and trying to get the attention of the right people so that it could be heard. But having a firewall between those two and realizing that, you know, because someone took a poem doesn't mean it's great, and because someone rejected it, it doesn't mean it's crap. 
you know. So those two, they're very separate. What what an audience and the world are making of your work and and what you're actually making at the desk. Fantastic, Patrick. Thank you so much for being on the show. I I really enjoyed speaking with you today and uh, lots to reflect on here. So thank you so much. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.